Speaking of reliability, a podcast with good friends talking with you about reliability engineering topics. Welcome to Speaking of Reliability. This is Fred Schenkelberg. And this is Greg Cutchins. Good morning, Fred. How are you? Hey, good, good. Good, <laughs> good, to, good, good to talk to you again, Craig. It's You almost we, forgot my name. You almost forgot my well, name. Well, I'm, I'm so out of practice here. I mean, I got to... On the screen, we're we're using uh, Zoom to record this. I have just the a red square with the letter G in it. I'm like, uh, Greg, yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, one of the thoughts, yeah, one of the thoughts I had um, is one of the, and I've hailed it as one of the hallmarks or. As, as the main benefit besides getting paid and job satisfaction and all other happy stuff of being a good reliability engineer is that there's new stuff being invented all the time. There's new mechanical ways to do stuff. There's new, there's AI stuff coming in. There's software things. There's new materials. There's new processes. And there's new stuff all the time. What's really cool in, or at least in the reliability, and I suspect to a large degree in the quality realm, is and even within risk, there's a, a handful of frameworks that are fairly consistent with each other. But that those tools, those methodologies, the processes that we use to do our work are pretty stable, and they can be adapted and applied to so many different things. But the my what I find fascinating is that we create new stuff with new and innovative ways of failing every day. And we being society and that keeps is just one example of how reliability engineers in engineering, I think in general is a, a career path. That means you just need to keep learning all the time. And if not just how things fail, but there's all kinds of others, how do you use these new materials and so on. But from my point of view, it's, well, you come up with a new gadget. I'm going to, have to figure out 10 ways that it's going to fail and it's all unique. It's not similar to anything else. I find that fascinating. I go out of my way to go learn stuff. Yet I, I, I know there's plenty of people I've worked with that really don't like doing that. And so it's, how do we encourage people to learn what they don't know? And and you know what I'm talking about with the don't know part. There's that you, you, you know what you conscious there's some things you don't even know that you know how to do. You know, you can tie a shoe with your eyes closed, kind of thing. Well, maybe not you, Greg, but <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, you know, another insult, another insult. There you go. But it's there's there's things you're unconsciously capable of doing, right? You just do it. And you don't know, you don't worry about all the details, riding a bike or tying your shoes or you know, doing things like that then there's things that you know how to do and you know, you know how to do it. And then there's things that you know, you don't know how to do. Like I know firsthand that I do not know how to do brain surgery. It's just not been on my to-do list or I just haven't figured it out. Not that I want to, but I know I don't know that. Now there's a whole nother bucket out there of things. I don't even know. I know, or don't know there's. And so that's the part I love is that when somebody comes up in the new material, 
I just have to play with it. How does it work? How does it doesn't? How does it not work? What are its risks? What stresses apply to it? I am poking and prodding everything else is an opportunity to chip away at that things I don't know, I don't know. Yet what I'm finding is, is that playing with something is one way to go doing that. Yet I don't find a lot of people that enjoy that process. Apparently not as much as I do, but I find it invaluable to be inquisitive and curious and, and take every opportunity to learn something. Uh, Yet I don't know why that is not prevalent is in my experience. Let me take a counter counter argument to you, Fred. So I think there's two types of people in this world, basically, those who get it and those who don't. (laughs) You know, you're either going to be disrupted or you're going to be a disruptee. So let's posit a position. So the world is populated by three types of reliability engineers. Okay, three types. Those to whom it happens, something happens. Uh, Those who wonder what happened and those who make things happen. Think about that. So an example of, you know, your boss says, hey, fill out this report or run this test. Those are things that the world, they're just being told what to do and they go do it. Is that what you mean? Well, yes, but again, uh, that's an example of two, those to whom it happens. If your boss asks you to do something, why didn't you anticipate that and preemptively develop that report for him or her? Mm -hmm. Those who wonder what happened are clueless. They're, you know, they're lost. And unfortunately, 70% of the people, I think, are wondering which way did he go? What, you know, what happened? Those who are smarter um, basically can sort of, you know, figure out something. I think the reliability engineers who are going to basically survive disruption are those who make things happen. Not react, not respond, but proactively seek opportunities to make things better, to find opportunities to make money, to understand the other person's point of view. Uh, You know, I think those are the three types of reliability engineers. You know, that really applies across the board, though. It's not to anyone. Across, exactly. Yeah, anyone, engineering and beyond. Yeah. Yeah. And if you get it, meaning you want to make things happen, then you're going to start learning. Then you're going to start finding opportunities, either, you know, to make money, to make your life happier, to, you know, to do something, right? Well, it's one of those where, <laughs> years and years ago, when I was working at Hewlett Packard, a guy that sat across the hall from me, mm-hmm. um, he was well into his 80s. And I think it was his third career when he was about, he was about to retire from Hewlett Packard after, I think, 20 years. And he would have a, a pension or a retirement, fund, you know, coming out of HB. He also had one from the post office and he had another one from some other company he worked with for 20, 25 years or something like that. And he, Triple he dipping. Had, he was triple dipping. He he in and so he was leaving HP at one point, and we we're having uh-huh. a, a farewell party for him. And somebody asked him, "So, what are you going to do with all this extra time you got?" And he goes, "Oh, well, I'm I was thinking that I'd do my startup now." You got it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but what are the things? And I got to spend a bunch of time with him. 
Um, and we we're problem solving and doing stuff like that. And he got in, we were in troubleshooting some issue with an electronics board. And he says, you know, this really reminds me of an issue that I saw in 1958. It was the year before I was born and he was already working <laughs> and solving problems. <laughs> and, and so he, he said, you know, if you look at it this way, and it's probably here, here, and here, and he was dead on, exactly right. Yet he pulled from a similar circumstance from, you know, decades prior in his experience that said, you know, this smells a lot like this kind of a problem. And it was kind of a dissimilar metal doing galvanic corrosion, which he would have thought we didn't, it wasn't even on the radar for the all of the group I was originally collected to, to try to solve this problem. And he walked in and says, you know, take a look at it this way. And we looked up the mismatch, the susceptibility of that kind of corrosion for the materials involved. And it was like, yep, that's, and here's the symptoms. And yet it was one of those things that he had decades of experience that he could pull on stuff. Yet he also had this voracious <clears throat> A reading habit. He was reading technical journals and manuals and any new material that came out. He was very interested in it for all kinds of reasons, but it was just guys. And he was 85 years old and he was as curious as a six-year-old. It was amazing. And it was a model for me to just be curious because you never know how you're going to put this stuff together. And it's proven very, very useful over the years. Yeah, but it was. It. Yeah, he he got and he got stuff done and um, all those kinds of things. Yet it was he survived the education program and remained curious. Is <laughs> the way I looked at it. Because there's you know the next day I'm interviewing somebody out of college and they were looking for us to just tell them what to do. You know, <laughs> like no, you're a college grad. You, you, didn't you learn how to like lead anything or think for yourself? And oh no, I didn't take that class. That was too hard. <laughs> so let's let let me put another spin on this thing. Let's say you graduate from Stanford in CS, computer science, in AI, and you graduate when you're 22. And I've shared this story with you before. Mm -hmm. You've got the half-life of knowledge, which is essentially the amount of time knowledge doubles in your domain. It could be reliability, quality, mechanical, or whatever. You're 26. Knowledge is doubled. You haven't retreaded then. You haven't gone back to school. You haven't been curious. Mm -hmm. Four years go by, and you're 30. Knowledge is quadrupled. You have not gotten back to school. So are you employable anymore? He, there's two ways that can be answered. I think it depends <laughs> on the person. Uh -huh. right? right. And if you're not, you don't have to go back to school per se. I think it's in, if you realize that Fortran, which you learned the first time in computer yep, yep, science yep. Um, is not prevalent anymore. And, and C plus plus is on its way out. Uh, and you're a quick learner, but you know, the fundamentals of programming, you know, the fundamentals of the coding logics and stuff like that. It's just picking up another language <laughs> that can be done. So the employable person will say, I'm familiar with this, this, and this, and I, I've learned these concepts that are, you know, 
transcend to any of these other languages. And I'm curious about this language and that language, and I'll pick it up pretty quick. As opposed to the person that says, I only know Fortran. And if you really make me work hard, I can remember some of my COBOL days. And if you don't have that, then I don't want to work for you. (laughs) (laughs) Then that person is not employable, except at the turn of the century. So um, I'll give you another story. Uh, The number one story this week in Atlantic Monthly, which is sort of a a nice magazine, is So Much for Code, Learn to Code. And the subtitle is, In the Age of AI, Computer Science is No Longer the Safe Major. I I buy into that. It was um, my, uh, one of our kids is a programmer uh-huh. and, and, and it says, do you use your company's AI system? He goes, Oh no, I use chat GPT. It's better. He's <laughs> like, That's and then what do you, how do you use it for? Is this well, it gives me the frame of the code and I just kind of run it through the test routines. And then I ask it to help me debug it. You know, it's like, well, what, what part of this is that makes you necessary in that kind of stop the conversation. <laughs> That Yeah, that ends it right there. So we're now, I mean, I used to be a writing shop. Now we're a software shop. And we use ChatGPT and low code to develop our apps. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of our, these are AI apps. And one of them, which we just loaded up on the App Store, we probably did 10x to 100x faster. Because low code and AI. So that begs the question if you don't understand what's happening in your profession, whether it's reliability or quality, and software can do it that much faster, what's your value proposition? What's your differentiator, value differentiator? Yep. And the one that can answer that question then is the one employable versus not. It, (laughs) <laughs> I, I ran into it in an interview years ago. It was an engineer. No, it was just, it was even not even an interview. I was doing a science fair. And uh-huh. this, I think she was in fifth grade. So there was the cross-section of volcanoes, and there was somebody measuring does hot water or cold water freeze faster and all the, the basic you know, grade school science fair project stuff all over the cafeteria, right? All these things. And then this one had a, a board up and her question was do um if you play sports Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you you get a muscle memory for hit you know kicking a soccer ball uh but if you're not picking up a softball and throwing it you probably don't have much muscle memory of how to do that well Mm -hmm. and so her premise was does practicing your skill actually make a difference or can somebody that's (laughs) athletic in a different field pick it up just as fast and so she designed an experiment and ran it and showed that soccer players could hit the target blindfolded, you know, with a soccer ball better than throwing a ball and five times without a blindfold and blindfolded. They were pretty bad <laughs> at it. It was a clever experiment to to show that difference. And she recruited her teammates and went onto a soccer field and got some teammates there and and, and ran a nice experiment. But that's not the interesting part. She was just over the top going, well, I've already explored this question because this came up. How about this part of it? And how about this part of it? She could 
figure out what questions to go answer, which was not something anybody else in that whole science fair did. They went to a book of junior, you know, uh, grade school science fair projects. And so there were 15 volcano cross sections, which is not even a science project, but that was in some book someplace. So a lot of people did it. They didn't know what questions to ask. Whereas this young lady, she was just beyond curious. She wanted to know and would, and was off then going to do the experiments to go do it. It wasn't somebody said, oh, run an experiment to see if you fertilize or don't fertilize your plants, which ones grow better, uh-huh. right? Which there was one of those. And one was, if you water it versus don't water it, which one grows? I'm like, okay, it's an experiment. Go for it. Mm-hmm. What did you learn from that? Well, they had no idea. Was this, uh, do you have anything else you're interested in this? No. You, you know, they were just, I did the experiment. I checked the box. I'm moving forward. Whereas this young lady was just enthusiastically pursuing, completely outside the science fair project, all of these other experiments of questions that she was able to craft herself. And and, and she already had a list like 10 or 12 other questions. I would have hired her on the spot if I could, if I could have. What she got, and she's one of those who got it, was by asking the questions, she understood what problem are we trying to solve? Yeah. Then she understood that she's going to make it happen. Yeah. Definition of leadership. Yeah, uh, I'm quite sure by this time she's running a company or doing very, very well. I really hope so, because she had her act together at fifth grade. <laughs> there you go. You know, there But you go. I've run into way too many out of college that, well, what have you done? Well, I passed all my courses. All right, what did you learn? Well, I, uh, do I need that anymore? It's like, uh, yes, um, but you didn't learn the important part is take initiative to ask good questions to, did you, and I would even ask, did you do an experiment in one of your courses, you know, electrical engineering or whatever, did you do an experiment? Yes. We all, we had labs, we had to do experiments. Did you ever have a question that wasn't part of the lab that you actually pursued? No. Why would I do that? It's Friday. I have to get out to the party. Like why do we want to hire this person? (laughs) So can I finish with a thought? Sure. So I basically pitched you an idea for a seminar last uh, two, three weeks ago. Basically, it's this Oregon State project for another app. Mm -hmm. It's called the Working at School to Work app. So here's the fundamental premise to the app. Uh, 40% of business leaders believe that college graduates are unprepared for work. Oregon State, biggest CS program in probably in North America, maybe even the world. These are very smart people, global program. And by the way, out of that 40%, 94% admit that they avoid hiring recent grads. Uh, I think the purpose of that data point is a lot of folks just simply don't understand that times are changing and um, they need to understand that (laughs) work ethic, business communications, you know, uh, keeping up with AI are really, really important. Once you get it, then I think you can make that transition to learning what you need to know or learning what you don't know. 
But first, yeah. there's that mental leap, that gap, you know, that, <laughs> you know, that that jump, you know, like jump of the shark that you have to make in your head. Yeah. So, I suspect this is a topic for another whole discussion. Is this, I, know, Brad, I don't yeah. know if it's the students that's failed the system or is it the, the education systems that's failed the students. And it's a whole other topic. It's, I know, but still, you know, folks got to get it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, and it doesn't matter what school you go to. If you, if you're like that fifth grade woman or young lady at the, uh, the science fair, uh-huh. it isn't, I don't, I don't think it matters where she would go to school. I think it would give her opportunities for one school versus another. Yet I think she's going to do well wherever. If the system doesn't beat her down, if it doesn't destroy her as she goes through junior high, high school, you know, sit in the rows, don't raise your hand, don't do anything out of out of the ordinary. I can't grade it if it's not in the test, you know, kind of thing. Um, hopefully that didn't happen, and she just survived all that. I, yeah, that's a whole nother discussion on another podcast. <laughs> the, the the part of it is curiosity. Part of it is is being open to explore and ask questions and and go figure out the answers to that to go make things happen is the way you I like the way you phrase that one Greg so if if you've got a, a technique or an idea on this thing and then we kind of jumped about on a couple different topics here but if if you're looking for new hires or not what is it you look for is it somebody that's learning or somebody that gets it or not or or is it something else so let us know. Head over to sendoverliability.com slash go slash S-O-R. And you have a couple of ways to get in touch with us there. Greg and I and the other hosts of the show are available through LinkedIn and our about pages. And we certainly enjoy hearing from you and what kind of topics or ideas are on your mind. Please let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Absolutely. Thanks, Fred. Good discussion. All right. Thanks, Greg. Talk to you soon. <laughs> All righty. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to Speaking of Reliability. We invite you to join the conversation if you have a question or a topic that you think we should discuss in a future show, please let us know. You can find a comment box below the episode show notes or just leave a note as part of a review on iTunes.